In January 2022, an article in The Lancet reported that 1.2 million deaths were attributable to antimicrobial resistance in the year 2019. At those figures, it would rank amongst the top 10 causes of death as reported by the WHO. It's a scary reality and then one that needs greater public attention. I've put a link to this article in the episode show notes. So if you have a moment, please have a read through it. Antibiotics are used in so many everyday processes, such as animal agriculture, in the environment, food farming, and of course, it's a very common finding in everyday medical practice. We know that development of antibiotics has been slow and not that successful in targeting the pathogens we're most concerned about. Also, without judicious use, even the new antibiotics are doomed to the same fate as their predecessors. And so the appropriate use of antibiotics in all settings, including and especially the outpatient clinical setting, cannot be overstated. Hi, I'm your host, Vindana Chibabai. It is my pleasure to welcome you to another episode of Microbe Mail. Today, we are discussing antibiotic stewardship considerations for outpatient practices. My guest is Dr. Gary Rubinson. Gary is a pediatric infectious diseases specialist. He's based at the Rahima Musa Mother and Child Hospital in Johannesburg, South Africa. Gary and I first worked together when I was doing my community service at Rahima Musa Hospital. It was really great to work there, Gary. I learned so much from the team, and it's been a really long time since then. So thanks for joining me, Gary, and welcome to Microbeal. Thanks, Vin. Yeah, it really has been a long time since we first worked together. Um, but certainly one thing that hasn't changed in that time is that there's still lots of room for improvement in the outpatient prescribing of antibiotics. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So just a few quick reminders before we head into the discussion. Please share this podcast with anyone you think might be interested. Remember to complete the one-step feedback for the episode by following the link in the show notes. And remember to follow and subscribe on the website or on social media. All of our details and links can be found in the show notes of this episode. So Gary, firstly, it's probably worth talking about the factors that influence a prescriber's decision to prescribe an antibiotic in an outpatient setting and why this might differ from an inpatient or hospital setting. So while we're all aware that antimicrobial stewardship activities within hospitals are really important, um, especially when it comes to pre preserving many of the few remaining effective antimicrobials that we have available against multidrug resistant organisms, I don't think we can side of the fact that outpatient antibiotic prescriptions also impact on antimicrobial resistance as a whole. Um, and they seldom receive as much attention um, from ID subspecialists. And they're also more difficult to really have um, kind of a stewardship impact on, on prescribers in those sort of settings. It's harder to influence prescribers because um, they're less accessible, they're less formal stewardship activities. Um, and I think we also need to recognize that these prescribers are under a lot of pressure. We're talking about um, doctors and nurses at primary health facilities. We're talking about practitioners in the private sector. And they've all got dozens of different guidelines that everyone thinks their guideline is right and doesn't understand why nobody's following theirs. Um, but, but the truth is, it's, it's really tough for them to keep up to date with everything that's expected of them. They've got limited time for each patient, either because there are lots and lots of patients waiting or because there, there are real um, uh, time limitations on the amount of time that um, they're able to spend with, uh, with patients. And so 
we can be critical of what they do, but we do need to recognize that the reality is it is tough on them. They do have limited time, and it, it, it can feel like the easier thing to do is just to prescribe the antibiotic rather than to take the opportunity to educate patients. And, and, and in my setting, obviously, because uh, my patients are, are often kids, educate their parents, um, that antibiotics are not always indicated um, and that inappropriate antimicrobial prescriptions do have consequences both in the short and yeah I, I definitely don't envy a general practitioner or a nurse working in a primary healthcare clinic it is a lot of work for them to kind of be that general all know-it-all physician so I agree it is quite tough so when it comes to outpatient antibiotic prescribing, we can look at it in two different ways. One is from the perspective of reducing antibiotic overuse. And secondly, we can look at improving antibiotic prescribing. So maybe we could just start off by talking about how one can reduce overuse of antibiotics. I think there's also often quite a disconnect between what prescribers think their patients want from them um, and what the patients and their caregivers actually want. So when you when you look at surveys done from antimicrobial prescribers, often they report that their patients demand antibiotics. They come there expecting antibiotics, and they're not happy um, unless they leave either with the prescription or the antibiotics themselves. But those same surveys and a number of others, when um, the, the the patients are interviewed actually seem to have the same level of expectation. Um, they report that they're very open to learning more about their infections and the infections that their children have, learning about what the expected natural course is, how long they're going to take better, uh, take, take to get better, how long that's, uh, how that's going to be different with and without antibiotics. Um, and, and, and trying to find ways to address this disconnect between what prescribers think their patients want um, from what their patients actually want, um, I think is an important area to focus. Um, and for me, this, this patient education process really starts early on. Um, we, for example, suggested that uh, antenatal care um, for, for, for young people um, about to deliver babies um, should include discussion with, with people around, well, what can they expect um, from their children? How often can they expect to experience these infections? When do they need to be worried? When should they expect to be given antibiotics? And that's just the start of the process. Um, we've, we, we, we've, we've spoken about and looked at options for people introducing um, this sort of training at preschool and um, junior primary school level so that um, children um, learn early on about the benefits and harms of antibiotics and take that home to their parents. And so the parents actually kind of indirectly learn from their children. Um, I certainly welcome the day, and, and, I, and I hope it does come certainly in my um, working lifetime, when prescribers are asked by their patients, why did you give me this antibiotic today? Do I really need it? Can't we just treat my symptoms first and see what happens? And if I'm not getting better, maybe then the antibiotic's the right thing. I completely agree with you. I don't think we engage with the public enough and with patients. And as you say, children as well. We forget that children have a really, really good understanding about what's happening with their bodies um, and themselves. Um, and we really need to engage better and communicate better. So I'm with you there on the why you're giving me an antibiotic today. So there's also a number of specific strategies targeted at improving antibiotic prescribing. So shall we go through some of these together? Thanks, Vinyal. Let's do that. I think a useful way to think about it is to kind of go through the common infections that are, are typically managed um, on an outpatient basis, um, both within children, which is, which is my focus, um, but 
same principles apply when it comes to these things when they're presenting adults. First start with diarrheal disease um, and outside of very, very rare exceptions, it's almost never appropriate um, to prescribe antibiotics in the setting of um, community-acquired outpatient um, diarrheal disease. Yeah. Moving on to think about um, sore throats. Um, so here are the main role of antibiotics in um, children and adults presenting with um, pharyngitis or tonsillitis is not really to make them feel better. We know that um, those conditions are far and away more likely to be viral than bacterial. And even when they are bacterial, the big bacteria that we need to be concerned about here is um, streptococcus pyogenes, so strep pharyngitis, strep um, tonsillitis. So the main reason to, to think about giving antibiotics to a patient with um, pharyngitis or tonsillitis um, is really to prevent acute traumatic. We know that all the viral causes will get better without antibiotics, and the vast majority of the bacterial ones will get better uh, without antibiotics. And even with antibiotics, the, 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 the symptom duration is almost the same. It's only marginally shorter with antibiotics. So really then we want to be focusing on um, those patients who are at risk for acute rheumatic fever as a complication of streptococcal pharyngitis or tonsillitis. And that applies to um, children, adolescents, and young adults in a fairly narrow age um, age band. You'll see people talking about 3 to 21 years, um, some more conservative guidelines will look at 5 to 15 years. In those patients where antibiotics are indicated, looking beyond um, narrow spectrum uh, beta-lactams um, is not necessary. Penicillin, amoxicillin remain perfectly reasonable. Um, we see people being given macrolides, amoxicillinate, a variety of oral cephalosporins, um, and these come with um, come with quite a cost, both with respect to um, financial implications, but also um, in, uh, with respect to selective or antibiotic resistance. Something else that I, I actually wasn't aware of until a few years ago was that there's now emerging evidence um, to suggest that we can dose, um, particularly amoxicillin, um, either daily or at the very most 12 hourly, so, so two doses per day, um, rather than the three to four doses that many of us traditionally have prescribed. And the final thing to think about around uh, pharyngitis tonsillitis is, well, what can we um, advise our prescribers to look for that will give us some, some idea of whether this is a bacterial cause or not? Um, and so things that suggest a bacterial cause for the pharyngitis tonsillitis would be an exudate, tender cervical um, lymph nodes, cough, blocked nose, runny nose, conjunctivitis, or the presence of any, and certainly most, there's more than one of those, strongly suggests that that is not a bacterial pharyngitis or tonsillitis. Right. Moving on from those, um, and to think about other uh, common conditions antibiotics are prescribed to outpatients. And so, so thinking about ear and sinus infections, again, these are often viral. Even the bacterial ones generally get better by themselves. Um, and this is one area where I think it's important to highlight the role of diagnostic stewardship. So if you look at, for example, the um, body of literature on acute otitis media, those studies that have rigorously diagnosed um, the condition using strict criteria, others that tend to find benefit to giving antibiotics. There is the don't use such strict criteria um, are the ones that tend to find no benefits and, and often, find, often harm because of the consequences of the antibiotics. And I think it does allow us to use that data um, when we're making that decision 
there are there are patients where it's quite clear that they they do have acute otitis media. You can see a perforated tympanic membrane. You can see pus draining out of it, or you can see a, an inflamed tympanic evidence of fluid behind the. Uh, in the middle ear. And in those situations where um, we're fairly sure that that, that patient definitely has acute otitis media and is much more in line with those patients enrolled in those first types of study, it's pretty reasonable to give an analog. Um, whereas in the other patients where you don't quite visualize the tympanic memory, the child's crying, so um, the eardrum looks red anyway, and where you're not um, entirely sure about the diagnosis, in that sort of setting, it's perfectly reasonable to withhold the antibiotic. And the same diagnostic stewardship considerations are true for acute bacterial sinusitis, where you have classic, classic bacterial sinusitis, uh, where the patient presents with a typical biphasic illness where they have the acute viral um, symptoms, they seem to be getting better, and then their symptoms worsen again, which is which is typical of um, bacterial sinusitis, or where they fail to start improving within 10 days of onset of symptoms, or they progress um, after seven to 10 days of symptoms. There seems to be quite clear from the literature that antibiotics um, do confer benefit. If antibiotics are indicated, high-dose amoxicillin remains a good option. Um, amoxicillin clavulanate is also reasonable, particularly if the person has recently completed a course of amoxicillin. Um, and on something I mentioned earlier, um, we can also dose these less frequently. So 12-hourly dosing has, uh, has a fairly strong evidence base to support it for both of these conditions. Um, and something else that's seldom practiced, at least as far as I'm aware in South Africa, but, but also has a reasonably strong evidence watch and wait approach where patients or parents of children with the condition are um, educated about what to expect, what warning signs to watch out for, when the child should start improving. Um, they're given an, a, a script for the antibiotic, but they're advised to only get the medicine if the child starts getting worse or fails to start improving within a few days. Um, and we know that where this is practiced, outcomes of immediate antibiotics and um, a watch and wait and deferred antibiotics are equivalent but with fewer antibiotic courses and consequently fewer side effects. Yes, right. Uh, moving on to consider outpatients who, with pneumonia who do not require admission. Again, a lot of these are viral antibiotics are recommended unless it is really, really mild. Um, for children being managed for pneumonia as outpatients, amoxicillin is a perfectly good um, option, um, although um, guidelines, including our own South African guidelines, um, would re recommend broader cover if they are admitted to hospital. Um, and something else has changed with, re with, with respect to the treatment of, of pneumonia. Shorter courses, as short as two to three days, um, are probably sufficient. And definitely um, for outpatients with pneumonia, no longer than a five-day course of therapy. That's incredible. Um, really good good update there. Considering skin infections, these seldom require systemic antibiotics and usually either no antibiotics or um, topical antimicrobials are adequate. A podcast these days can't go by without considering um, COVID nineteen. Um, so, but just really one, <laughs> just really one, um, one sentence on that. And in that, almost none of patients, whether adults or children, who being managed at home, um, uh, require antibiotics. Um, and and even those that are admitted to hospital, which isn't which isn't the topic of today's discussion, um, even those admitted to hospital, very very seldom require antibiotics for their for their COVID pneumonias. Gary, I think that should be, for this episode, highlight number one, number two, and number three um, is that COVID and antibiotic um, combination. 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean, we we we've seen the data around the world just how antibiotic prescriptions have have um, skyrocketed over the last two years. Yeah. Uh, the last one I want to touch on is just on um, outpatient treatment of urinary tract infections, and particularly to to highlight um, um, children in this regard. Um, this is covered really nice in episode ten of Microbe Mail. So anyone who hasn't listened to that, I, I recommend they, um, they they give that a listen. Um, but for most children um, with suspected urinary tract infections, we really, really don't want prescribers um, uh, providing antibiotics until they truly have confirmed that that's that their child has a bacterial uh, urinary tract infection. So that's somewhat different to the approach taken in adults. Um, and almost every child with a confirmed urinary tract infection requires degree of investigation. Um, and, and, and so these are patients that should have good urine samples collected that should be fairly rapidly, at least as rapidly as possible, um, sent to an appropriate microbiological laboratory um, based on the results, um, be treated and investigated um, from there onwards. Um, which, which, which as, 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 as your listeners will, will, will realize, uh, is quite different to the approach taken, um, at least um, in, for most adults. Yeah, that's correct. So then the second point would be selection of the appropriate choice of antibiotic. Yeah, and this can be really tough for um, general practitioners, primary healthcare nurses. Um, so our, our simple advice is to follow guidelines. There are lots and lots of really high quality guidelines that are available. Um, when they're not sure, ask for advice. And um, there's absolutely no shame in, in, in asking for guidance for um, confirming that what your proposed plan was is appropriate. Um, I see a really big role for pharmacists um, in this regard um, with respect to antimicrobial stewardship in the outpatient setting. They really are a vital part of the stewardship team, um, considering both public and private sectors, including uh, f- uh, for outpatients, because often they're the people who actually physically provide the antibiotics to, um, to the patients. Yes. I've re- I very much look forward to the day when most prescriptions that do deviate from recommended therapy, whether it's the wrong agent, the wrong dose, the wrong duration, the wrong dosing interval, are queried by pharmacists. So they feel free to contact the prescribers, usually doctors, without having to go through the um, process of being attacked by the doctor. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Lynn. And it actually makes some of the pharmacists, I think, fearful of, of doing their jobs because they are worried about being attacked. Yeah, I mean, we, we rely on them. They're our safety net. As hard as we try not to make mistakes, it's inevitable um, that prescribing errors will take place. Yeah, absolutely. So the third point is to consider the pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics of the available antibiotics. Yes, a- apart from definite, definitive acute ascites media and um, acute rheumatic fever prevention um, where 10-day courses are appropriate, we can almost always stop the antibiotic when the patient starts feeling better um, for all of these outpatient syndromes. Um, and, and I touched on dosing intervals a little earlier. Uh, it's very unlikely that anyone who's prescribed six to eight hourly um, doses of their medication will be able to take them. Yeah. So if we're, if we're able to, to kind of shift to daily or at the very most 12 hourly dosing, um, we should. And this is now possible for all of these common outpatient um, syndromes, for which may be prescribed. Number four is to encourage patients' compliance. Yeah, so here um, it's, it's important to try and communicate effectively um, with our patients and um, their caregivers about the frequency 
dosing, the duration of the treatment, when they can stop it, what side effects to watch out for. Um, if someone know what to expect, um, they're far more likely to stop the medication than if they're warned about what to look out for. Um, and, and, and to keep our doors open, and if patients want um, to discuss things further, um, to provide them that opportunity. Um, it, it, it shouldn't be a one-off intervention that um, the encounter takes place and that's the end of the day. Um, we, we, do, we do need to encourage that sort of communication. Absolutely agree. So here's an interesting one, Gary. When is antibiotic combinations needed, i.e. more than one antibiotic? I've been giving this some thought. Um, it's a question that came up um, a week or two back in a, in a different setting. And from then until now, I honestly can't think of a situation where an outpatient can justifiably be prescribed combination antimicrobial therapy empirically. Um, am I missing something? Can you think of any? No, I can't. I can't either. And I think the point here to make, I think, is that generally bacterial and fungal and even parasitic infections are very different from things like TB and HIV. Whereas with TB and HIV, you really do need multiple antimicrobials to treat those infections. Um, most bacterial and fungal infections need just a single agent, and particularly Absolutely. in an outpatient setting. Yeah, quite right. I think some exceptions in severely ill patients, but, but that, that isn't where our focus is today. No, absolutely. And then number six, avoiding poor quality antibiotics. I've given this thought, and I, I, I don't think it's as big an issue in our country as it is elsewhere in the world. Um, I think um, the opposite may actually be true in our setting. This isn't true everywhere in the world. Um, elsewhere, counterfeit medicines are a much more real concern. Uh, but in our setting, for the patients and the funders, um, there's money to be saved here by using non-originated products when, when good quality generics are available. Yeah, so just listeners listening from outside of South Africa, it is something for them to think about. Um, and then number seven, discouraging patients from self-prescribing. Absolutely. I mean, I think we've we, we've all had, had had situations where friends and family members have told us about the leftover antibiotics from the yes. previous course that they've used, yes. or whether where they've used someone else's antibiotics. Um, and this can be tough to deal with because you kind of understand them keeping it just in case. Um, but our advice would be to return unused or expired antibiotics to clinics, hospitals, or pharmacies, um, not to self-prescribe. Um, them and also not to dispose of them with the rest of your household rubbish or down toilets or down drains because we don't really want those antimicrobials getting into um, the environment and potentially um, increasing the burden of antimicrobial resistance in that way. I don't think people are aware of that, Gary. Um, I, if I can just talk from personal experience in the December holidays, I did a clean out of our medicine cupboard at home and I, I normally anything that's expired, I put it on a separate shelf and when the shelf was full, then I kind of collect everything and return it to the pharmacy. Um, and we had family and friends coming over who had seen this large packet. And when I said what I was doing with it, they all looked at me kind of shocked in not realizing that they shouldn't have thrown it in the bin. So again, patient education is important. Yeah, quite right. And then number eight, I've got follow peer-reviewed evidence-based guidelines. Yeah, there are lots of good guidelines available. Um, so, so we recommend the prescribers follow them unless a good read from them. I think that is absolutely important to recognize that um, 
having written and been involved with the writing of lots of guidelines over the over the past few years, it's tough to write something that applies to everyone across yeah. all levels of care, across all socioeconomic bands. Um, and so uh, th there's no such thing as a perfect guideline. So while we do encourage prescribers to follow this, we also want prescribers to feel that they can deviate from them when they have good reason to do so. Mm. Certainly nobody should be relying on pharmaceutical representatives um, for their ongoing education, um, and, and I just want to kind of highlight one other important um, aspect here, and that's the role of vaccines in preventing antibiotic use. Yeah. Many of the currently available vaccines um, either directly um, prevent or reduce the, um, the risk of antimicrobial resistance infections or indirectly do so um, by reducing those clinical syndromes that may potentially prompt someone um, to prescribe an antibiotic. So here I'm thinking about measles, pneumococcal vaccination, haemophilus vaccination, influenza, rotavirus, pertussis, COVID vaccines. All of them, um, I think, um, have the role of, of, of reducing opportunities for inappropriate um, antimicrobial prescriptions. And in the future, I'm really hoping we can add RSV onto that list um, because that's that for us is the, the one big remaining pathogen yeah. um, that we desperately would like an effective vaccine against. Yeah, definitely. And then number nine, nine out of 10, so we're almost there, appropriately using the clinical microbiology laboratory. And again, just to emphasize that diagnostic stewardship is important. And I often worry that positive cultures may result in, in fact, overprescription of antibiotics. Yeah, I agree. And I must apologize, sorry, Vin, because I'm about to say something that um, I don't usually say, but <laughs> that the role of the microbiology laboratory in appropriately managing outpatient infections is really quite limited um, in that the majority of these infections, we know what the pathogens are that are causing it. We know ones require antibiotic therapy and which don't. Um, However, and one exception to what I'm saying is that um, throat swabs in patients with pharyngitis are underutilized, uh, particularly in the um, African setting, where um, if a swab is done and um, strep pyogenes group A strep is not identified, you then have a very, very um, good reason to avoid um, prescribing antibiotics. Yeah. Um, this isn't always logistically easy in our setting in that um, doing the swab often involves the patient having to come back for the results or having to come back to collect the medication. Um, and so logistically, it's, it's quite tough. Um, but certainly in the right setting, it's something that, that I think is underutilized. And one of my particular bugbears um, is that I think most of the viral testing, particularly in outpatients, is probably unnecessary. I think fairly soon we'll get to the point where even COVID testing um, in these sort of patients um, is, uh, is going to be seen to be unnecessary once, once it becomes endemic. These are expensive tests. And if they truly did stop people from prescribing antibiotics, um, then we could have a discussion with um, worthwhile investigations or not. Um, but the available evidence suggests that um, they seldom stop people from prescribing antibiotics. And if they cost a lot of money and they're not going to um, change management, um, I, I, I honestly don't see, see, see a big role for them. No, I completely agree with you, Gary. I think it's the appropriate use of the, the laboratory that's important, not just sending a specimen because you have a test available. Um, and also with the viral testing, I agree with you. There are many studies which have shown that only in conjunction with antimicrobial stewardship interventions have antibiotic prescriptions been reduced uh, in combination with those viral testing. 
Yeah. And so often the the, the, the co-pathogens and um, yeah, trying to tease out exactly um, what pathogen is responsible for what um, is, is really, really quite challenging. It is tricky, yeah. And then the last one I've got here is to prescribe rational data-driven empiric antibiotic therapy in very specific circumstances. Yeah. Uh, I agree. It's important for prescribers to know their local epidemiology, know what the trends are with respect to susceptibility and resistance um, amongst isolates in their setting, uh, know the limitations of um, surveillance programs, and to be prepared to ask for help when they're not quite sure what to do. Um, there's, there's absolutely no shame in asking for advice. Yeah. Um, I, I certainly um, get lots and lots of phone calls every day um, for, with these sort of questions, um, but I'm sure others and would be happy to get those sort of questions um, because once you're asked a question once you're pretty sure that that prescriber is um, going to carry that information forward um, and he's likely to disseminate it um, so, so the repercussions in general are positive yeah that's absolutely true so gary these recommendations are all great but ensuring that they are followed is actually not that simple is it so how does a, yeah so how does a facility or an outpatient practice actually ensure that these recommendations are being followed? I wish I had a good answer to that. Uh, <laughs> and unfortunately, I don't. Uh, it definitely is going to require a team effort. Um, it's going to include um, better education at undergraduate level, ongoing training of prescribers, empowering patients to ask questions and to feel able to decline unnecessary antibiotics, um, to similarly empower pharmacists to be more proactive in their engagement with, with, with prescribers. And I'm sure the listeners can come up with, with a whole lot of other important components to an effective program. There's certainly no uh, easy answer and there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all intervention either. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a work in progress. So Gary, before I ask you for your take-home message, we're going to move on to our spotlight feature for this episode, and we're playing another micro game. So stakes as always are sky high. Let's see if you can get a microbe named after you. So, <laughs> so today we're going to have a, another microbe riddle, and this is what microbe am I? I'm going to give you a couple of clues, and you have to guess the name of the microbe. Are you ready? Ready. Okay, here it goes. I am a eukaryote, although I am single-celled. I'm usually round in shape if you zoom in and look up close. I enjoy making a buddy to keep me company. They say I can make you go crazy if I get into your head. You'll find me anywhere on earth, in the soil and in the wood. But I especially like a bird who was the telegraph messenger in World War II. Which microbe am I? Okay, thanks, Vin. I've been listening closely to your quizzes on all the previous podcasts, and I don't want to be the first guest to get it wrong. <laughs> um, I'm thinking this is Cryptococcus neoformans. Brilliant. I knew you'd get it. Well done. <laughs> so I hear lots by, of good clues there. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I didn't want to make it too tricky or too easy. <laughs> so I hereby bestow upon you your official microbial title, Gary Bacterium Rubensinalis. Like it? Yeah. 
sounds sounds like a potential pathogen, but hopefully not too, <laughs> nothing too serious. You're going to go out and change your ID document, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Wynne. Okay, Carrie, so you can give our listeners a quick take-home message about outpatient antibody prescribing. Thanks. Yeah, I think the more... Um, as prescribers, the more we know about common infections, the more we know about their microbiology, and importantly, the natural course when left untreated, um, the more likely we are to be able to avoid unnecessary antibiotic prescriptions. Excellent. Gary, thanks again for joining me on this episode of Microbe Mail. It was really great to have you with us and to listen to your pearls of wisdom. I hope you'll be able to join us again sometime soon. I look forward to it. Awesome. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to click on the feedback link in the show notes and rate this episode. Follow Microbe Mail on social media or even subscribe on our website. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or if you'd like to suggest a guest or a topic, send us an email at mail.microbe at gmail.com. That's it from me, Vin, your Microbe Messenger. See you again soon with more Contagious Mail. <laughs>